You may or may not have heard as you drove or took the train uh, here, uh, if you arrived late yesterday afternoon, that uh, President Mubarak finally stepped down yesterday as Egyptian president. If any of you here have been in retreat for months and don't know anything about current affairs, you can just let it uh, all go by. But for those of you just here for a few days and uh, maybe following the events in Egypt, I was actually in Egypt for the first five days of the protests. And so so I've been particularly kind of uh, keenly following what's been happening. And I was very much struck when I was there by a, a very kind of a very gracious quality to uh, people's actions and hopes, and in fact their relationship to the to the regime, which were, they were very very uh, fervent and committed to changing. Somebody, I was speaking to someone there about it. They said. We don't want to humiliate Mubarak and we don't want to punish him. We just want him to go. And there's a very gracious quality to that. And after 18 days of those protests, nah. The regime dissolving and pretty all the all the demands that the protests that the protesters had been making that have been addressed uh, by the army yesterday and today and of course it continues to unfold. So we see there in in the the graciousness and if you follow it, many of the actions are very uh, are very steadfast, non-violent for the most part, gracious, as I say. These people really, and many, many of them, making a stand for freedom. And just reflecting on that today uh, and, and following the news. And the relationship to our endeavours here, which of course on a, in a very different scale and a very different context but nevertheless inviting some of the same qualities, inviting us. In fact, it's exactly what we're doing in some ways here, is making a stand for freedom. The willingness to be steadfast with ourselves. And sometimes meeting our own mind can feel like facing up to a dictator. The... uh, rigidity of the dictates of how we describe ourselves to ourselves, how we describe what should be happening, how I ought to be, what others ought to be doing. The tyranny that we sometimes live under of our own complaining, controlling, Uh, in a in a dictating so we're invited to take make this steadfast 
stand for freedom. We're invited to bring these qualities of graciousness, gentleness, kindness, forgiveness. We've been speaking about as an open, receptive relationship, a connected, curious, caring relationship, a loving relationship to what we're meeting in the name of freedom, in the name of this vision, this intimation, this possibility of living free from inner tyranny. This possibility of meeting life fully and freely, graciously. In uh, discovering, cultivating, we could maybe more accurately say uncovering the capacities for a real responsiveness to life. And beautiful though that may seem, beautiful though that may sound, and even though we've been here steadfastly for about 24 hours in our stand for freedom, sometimes, often maybe, perhaps the majority of our experience doesn't feel very free. There may be moments, chinks, where one has a sense of that possibility. And there may be for others some, some real consistency to a sense of a free participation in our own life. But in this, this promise of freedom... In a way, it's, it's often characterized by the reflection of everything I notice that's not free. What I was speaking about yesterday as the demands, the defenses and the distractions, the stories we spin, the habits that uh, keep on uh, driving us around, the places we're uncomfortable, the things we're afraid of. Extraordinary. In such, you know, we could look at the container of our retreat as an extraordinarily safe environment, really. If we look around, we probably feel fairly trusting that nobody here means us any kind of harm and, in fact, is feeling every bit as supportive of us as we are feeling of them. It would be hard to find anything we really, if we take a little step back from our own psychology and our own patterns and our own uh, kind of inner dialogues and dramas, we might easily recognize there's nothing here for me to be afraid of. And yet, often, if we start to look really carefully, we find our inner lives quite uh, characterized by fear. The, the states of mind that we're afraid of, the emotions that we're afraid of, the physical experiences that we're afraid of. It seems like there's quite a lot of body and heart and mind that we're afraid of being contacted with, that we're afraid of being in contact with. You might notice when this physical discomfort in meditation 
how we get into a real, how we get quite worked up about that. How what's essentially a play of heat and pressure and uh, tingling maybe uh, going on in shoulders or back or knees or somewhere. And we, we know, again, if we step back a little bit from being so caught up in the drama, we know well that if we walked in with two functioning legs, we're going to walk out with two functioning legs. It's not go- Because there's pins and needles, our leg isn't going to wither and uh, you know, drop off while we're here. And yet that kind of uh, step-back rational knowing doesn't, isn't often very helpful to us in the face of our habitual, fearful reactivity. Oh, oh I, don't, I don't want to feel this. And then we go, still 15 minutes to go. And then, uh, and then the, the strategizing, the freaking out about, the raging against, or the, the endless, uh, uh, or the, the, the shuffling, or the, the wondering why I've got it wrong, and uh, do I need more cushions, and uh, how come everybody else seems to be able to sit okay, except for me, and they all look straight, and on and on. There's just more and more productions, amateur drama productions, in our own minds. The, the fear, not just of what's going on internally. So there's, there's the, just one example in the physical. We could no doubt explore all kinds of other fears around our emotional life. In the contact with sadness or hurt or confusion or other states. You can pick the one or more that particularly incites your uh, Resistance, difficulty, the things that seem unacceptable for us to experience. Whether that's physical pain or emotional pain. And similarly, out there, you know, with others. The, how much energy often is taken up with some kind of the fear of what he or she or they might think. kind of strange one because we have no idea one of the great relief reliefs of being in silence together we don't know and we're not gonna know what he or she or they think and really what he or she or they think make has no bearing on the movement of my life and yet you know, again, you can just to explore and find your own uh, doubts and hesitancies and worries and fears. Either caught in those, might be just serving ourselves as lunch, you know, a big spoon, oh, what will they think? What will they, what will they think I'm not uh, an equanimous, peaceful, uh, un, un, non-attached yogi? Or sometimes because it's uh, uncomfortable to be in contact with that kind of fear of other what they might think there's a kind of uh, belligerence against oh, I don't care what others think but whether we feel subject to the fear or in or uh, in in conflict with I don't care in either way we're under the sway so 
often if we look carefully. And of course, these are maybe small fears. But this is the place where we get to work with small fears. As well, sometimes there's big ones. But, you know, meditation in many ways is like putting our life under the microscope. So that these small fears, the things that are maybe going on moment by moment, daily in our lives, that flip through and in our half, you know, partly demanding, partly defended, partly distracted state, we don't even notice the passage of these things. And yet as we put them under the microscope, these small details our moment-to-moment mind states, our moment-to-moment interactions with others, even in the silence, like in the way I was just describing in the lunch queue, start to stand out to us. And what we're seeing is the patterning of our minds. What we're seeing are the things that... uh, that that drive us, the things that constitute our, our habit patterns... And we, we also can see how we can, get, we can invest a lot of energy in um, trying to hide from, trying to avoid what we're afraid of. Very understandably, because the message is, what I'm afraid of is somehow the, the, the very f- fear of it says it's something terrible, it's something unacceptable, it's something unexperienceable, it's something that will somehow consume me, swallow me up. We know that actually really meeting that uh, physical discomfort in meditation isn't really going to swallow us up. We know that if somebody has a judgmental thought about us and how much onion soup we took, it's it's of complete negligible uh, significance in our life. And yet in those moments, (gasps) caught in the grip of fear, we we want to avoid that self-image. Don't want to to, uh, confront the the thought of myself as greedy or the, the thought of the perception of the other of me as greedy or whatever it might be. It's a tiring life. It's a tragic life. Wherein so much energy is expended in trying to avoid what we're afraid of. It's understandable, like I say, because of the message of fear. This is unacceptable, unmeetable. But is that true? All the while we're so busy trying to avoid what we're afraid of, what seems unacceptable in our experience, we don't get the opportunity to see if it's true that it would be so terrible to experience those things. So the invitation of this practice in many ways is... The invitation to see, is it true that there are parts of your experience that can't be met, that are too awful to go near? Is it true that there's actually anything at all, inner or outer, that we need be afraid of? 
Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if we could actually hold that as an open question? We like certainty. We're very quick to come down on yes or no. Find some example and we hear that question. Is there anything in or or outer we need to be afraid of? We might jump to the, well, yes, there's A, B and C. Or we might feel inspired by the seeming... um, uh, uh, What's the word? The seeming assumption, the seeming direction where I go with the question. We say, oh no, nothing to be afraid of. In a rather gung-ho way. But could we hold it genuinely in our life, in relation to our experience, inner and outer, as an open question? When confronted by those things that seem not okay, that seem that I need to ignore them, push them aside, move away from them. One of the greatest gifts that I feel I've, I've understood from this practice is that the things that seem most unacceptable in my experience, the things that seem most not okay about me, the things that seem least appetizing, most repulsive, most uh, that most uh, painfully contrast with the self-image I'd like to keep propping up of myself are the things that bear the greatest fruits. To turn towards the things that were in the, the, the energy to deny, uh, avoid, hide from is the greatest, it's the turning towards the places where that is the great, that reaction is the greatest, is what seems to free up the most inner space. Because we, we know as well that the fear of something really never is as bad as the actual meeting of it. It's like when you're inside and it's raining and you're looking, you look out and you see somebody walking through the rain and you think, oh, how horrible, how horrible to be out in the rain. It seems, it seems horrible, right? You see, horrible. But when you're out in the rain, it's okay. It's okay. Actually, when, you actually, when the fear of something goes away because you actually find yourself in the very situation you were afraid of, not only is it okay, often, not always, but often it's even exhilarating. And the exhilaration is the knowing, the freedom from the fear. So we don't like the idea of walking in the rain, right? Cold, wet, the way that we think of that trickling down the collar and down the neck and uh, we think of ourselves as uncomfortable, etc., etc. Might not be the rain for you, but, you know, whatever your thing is. And yet the actual contact, the actual 
real contact with that which we've had a fearful kind of construction around is very, very recognisable by the falsehood of the fear. So it's worthwhile for us to pay close attention to the things we reject. The things we reject as not okay. Not how I ought to be. Not what I'm able to uh, experience. Those things are, are like, uh, kind of calling out to us. Saying, please, give me some attention. And it's in the giving attention that we can see through the fear of them. We have the, this vision which we've referred to, which we've in, talks about the intimations of the, this vision that the Buddha points to, which he calls the fearless life. And we might just just see for ourselves what our relationship is to a fearless life. A life wherein we don't need to protect, defend, organise, manipulate, manage our experience in such a way as to always try to fit into what seems to become an ever-narrowing comfort zone. That seems to be what happens for people who don't really get interested in in a life. And people who don't actually make any attempt to train their minds to understand they're in a process tend to get more and more ossified, rigid as we get older. And so what seems acceptable starts to exist in a kind of narrower and narrower bandwidth. You see that in the letters page of the Daily Mail. (laughs) Letters from people whose bandwidth of acceptability has gotten like that. And yet, the possibility for us, for our, our, for our human consciousness, is an expanding possibility, a growing possibility. And actually, as we go, a friend of mine who's a writer, she describes one of the way in creative writing, she says to go fearwards. It's a beautiful word. It very much applies to our practice and, and the way we're exploring it tonight. As we go fearwards, our bandwidth of what's acceptable naturally 
opens out, gets more inclusive, gets more spacious. And the, the implications of that, that we start to really discover, not just as an idea, not as a nice idea, a platitude, but discover in the reality of our own consciousness, is that the opening of that bandwidth of what we can experience has no bounds, has no limit. The degree to which our experience of life can open up has no limits to it. What it means to experience body, heart, mind and world has no limit. And really any aspect of that, any aspect of life that we really contemplate, as we explore it, it opens up. As it opens up, it reveals more of itself. As more of it's revealed, there's more to explore. And on and on and on. Fuller and freer. And so our, our life can begin to be more and more characterized by this opening bandwidth. This sense of more and more possibility and therefore more and more freedom to move, more and more space. Less and less that we need to hide from, turn away from. And in fact, as that space opens up, the very mechanism of refusal, of, oh, that's not okay, starts to really stand out to us. We start to notice that something, something's weird, something's unnecessarily kind of uh, messy when I start to go, oh, no, that's not okay. And the very tightening, the very contraction, the very refusal starts to look very obvious in the light of the increasing space we have in our lives. Life is characterized by a lot of space, and yet we tend to, to obsess around, focus on the detail. Just like in this room, right? By far the most significant thing in this room is the space in it. Look, look, just little, me this much, and space this much. All of you, just little bits and pieces, and then all this space around us. And yet, we tend to focus on the content and ignore or forget or just not notice the space. That's very, very much the same in our consciousness. Consciousness is mostly characterized by space. Our consciousness is phenomenally spacious, limitlessly spacious. And yet, oh, how we fixate upon the detail and the drama and the content. And so much so that our life seems so full of content that that's all there is. Well, that's all there seems to be. 
And the content all seems to be about me. My life, my story, my work, my relationships, my partner, my problems, my history, my neuroses, my plans, my issues, my, 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 my. And yet, and it needs, uh, it needs a, um, a, a change of perspective from us to see it. In just the same way that habitually we're busy looking at each other, fixating on the content, it needs an opening of our perspective, and then obviously we recognize, oh, space, oh yes, when it's pointed out to us, and when we recognize ourselves, oh, space, wow, the space in this room is big. Free. Kind of, it has a majestic quality to it. And it's light in the way, look at the way space makes room for everything. Space doesn't oppress us. I don't, it doesn't kind of push me, squeeze me. Space makes room for me. In the same way, we're fixated on the content of our experience. Right? The detail of our thoughts and what we think about what he did and what she said. And it needs a change of perspective. The mechanism, a mechanism for which is meditation. To start to recognize the spaciousness of consciousness. The spaciousness that just in the same way as I've been speaking about in the room, makes space, makes room, allows the content to move freely. The free expression of bodily life. Emotional life, mental life, sensory life. I just notice right now the content of the moment. Whatever stands out, whether it's something that's happening physically, sensation of sitting here, whether it's some other aspect of your experience. How do we notice the content of our experience? We notice it because there's space for it to be here. If there was only content, there would be no perspective. Right? This is important. The very fact that we're able to notice our experience is because of the spaciousness of our consciousness. As we move our bodies, we're able to know it's moving. There's, there's space for our body. As thoughts fire in our mind when we're not just caught up in the story of them, we're able to notice, oh, there's space for thought. There's space for our life. As we notice, as we pay attention to the movements of heart and body, mind, world, sensate experience, 
this space starts to characterize our sense of life more and more. More and more outwardly. More and more inwardly. Outwardly in terms of a sense of, of expansiveness. My, my sense of my participation in life includes what's happening in, in, the, in the, the, what I call, in a rather clumsy and inaccurate way, out there. The space of my life starts to include that, include the, the, the contact with people, with uh, situations, with ideas even. It's a relief. It's a great relief to feel more inclusive of life rather than defended against it. For our life to be a participation rather than a negotiation between me and you, this and that, here and there. And more space inwardly. In fact, as we look at our life, as we contemplate, as we stay plugged in to, connected to, curious about, caring of, what happens inwardly? We find that the, the, the content, the stuff that used to seem to take up so much space, that this, that this inner life that seemed to be uh, busy, chaotic, contradictory, uh, conflictual, back into alphabets again, there's lots of, lots more C's there. As we start to, to, to find the, the space, the, the greater relevance of the space in our inner life, we find that the content really is quite, quite simple to manage. The amount of time and effort that it requires, the amount of energy that it requires to manage the life of body, heart and mind, the, um, you know, the maintenance of our lives and our relationships and our duties, the amount of energy that that requires isn't really very much. That might come as a big surprise to us because usually it seems to take up pretty much all our energy. If, if our sense of our inner life is one that feels, because we're solely identified with the content, with the thought, feels busy, chaotic, and like all different things are clamoring for attention, whew, that's a tiring and a tragic life. And yet as we recognize the space of consciousness... Wow, space is infinitely vaster than the content. Just like the space in this room is so much vaster than the space we take up. And even if we were to fill this room up with us, just we just need to look out the window. Oh. It doesn't matter the degree to which we're engaged with life and engaged with content. 
However engaged that is, when our perspective is wide, vast, clear. Space is vast, wide, clear. Means consciousness is vast, wide, clear. Content is quite extraordinarily self-organizing when we give it the space to be so. So here's the invitation. It's a nice idea to give space to what's happening within us. But it tends to be that the way that space gets opened up is by attending to the things that seem to take up the most space, to be the the the, the bits that... Uh, like I've been saying, that we feel we need to hide from, turn away from. We'd like to just give space to the nice stuff. Even when we start to speak in these kind of kind of spiritually shiny terms. Freedom, spaciousness. We tend to, like I was saying something yesterday about the kind of airbrushed version of that. We tend to accentuate kind of delightful, positive qualities. But it seems to be that we really discover space by seeing through the things that take up the most space. The things that we lock away, move away from, deny, avoid. So... What are we willing to do? How steadfast are we willing to be in making a stand for our freedom? How inspired are we to live fully and freely? To be carried by the spaciousness of life. To be carried by the spaciousness of our own consciousness that in its space comes forth naturally as brightness, clarity, responsiveness, intuition, sensitivity. All we need do, really, is pay attention. Close, contactful, curious, caring attention. We don't need to go looking for the, the dark, scary places. 
We don't need to say, right, what did you say something about confronting fear? That's where it's at. Come on, then. <laughs> Life uh, shows up. Life shows up in us. Sometimes there's moments of beauty and exquisiteness, expansion, appreciation, delight. Moments that we can open to, make space for. And sometimes life shows up to us with more challenge. Presents itself as somehow uh, something unmeetable. So the encouragement is just to see if we can remind ourselves that when something presents itself as not okay, not acceptable, not meetable, not allowable, it's like a flag saying, give this some space. We'll, we'll never be sorry for making space in our life. We'll never be sorry for listening to our own hearts and minds. And any time we turn fearwards, the great gift of that is that we get to see that the very thing that made that mind state or that reaction uh, so awful was just the fear of it. I heard... uh, a lovely talk once by Ramdas. Um, you may or may not have heard of. He's a kind of very beloved elder American teacher who spent many years in India and was kind of famous on the psychedelic exploration trail with LSD in the 60s. And this was in the 90s, I think, in Bristol. He was saying, uh, he was describing how he'd done like 40 years of yoga and meditation and psychotherapy and drugs and fasting and every kind of uh, discipline and non-discipline in the service of expanding his mind. And he said, and in all those years, I don't think I've gotten rid of even one of my neuroses. (laughs) I think he was exaggerating for effect, but... And then he says, but the difference is they're just not monsters that they used to be anymore. There's plenty of space for them. So then we see what seemed to be unacceptable. The view of ourselves as greedy, as stupid, as a useless meditator. The, the, the feeling of uh, sadness or hurt or anger or confusion. Whatever it might be, you see those things arise in our consciousness. And we say, oh, well, that's what's here. What 
what power could that fleeting thought, that fleeting feeling really have over us? Other than the power we've given it by holding it as this this, uh, awful thing, scary thing. That's what I said yesterday about there being no wrong experience, no wrong feeling. Nothing we need to censor out of heart and mind. So we sit here, friends, and walk and eat and rest and you know go about the kind of what I was just referring to as life under the microscope in a context of spacious, silent support. And we might just ask ourselves, moment by moment throughout the day, What's calling for attention? What what's, wants to make itself known in, the, in this space, in the silence? What, if anything, am I hiding from, keeping at bay, turning away from? Because whatever it is, that I don't want to face, that I'm ignoring, that I'm trying to distract from or whatever, I'm giving that a painful power over my life. So, may the space in our life open up. So that the details and the dramas are revealed really just as specks, as dust motes in the sunlight of our consciousness. Coming and going, arising and passing. So that our heart and mind and body and all the life of that can have its free expression. Life has room for us. Our consciousness has room for whatever shows up. May we meet it really, fully, freely. May we stand for freedom with conviction, with graciousness. <clears throat>